that time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. the cold war show episode 75 yeah. ray how you doing i'm doing hot oh you, hot. you certainly are and if you're wondering how degrees i celsius <laughs> oh. 85 degrees fahrenheit in my little studio right now i'm sweating it's dripping down my balls sweating ray. to the oldies oh you're preaching to the choir and if you're wondering how i'm doing i'm doing better now that you're here <laughs> on our last episode we interviewed uh, Ben Steele, economist Ben Steele from the Council of Foreign Relations, a.k.a. the Dark Army. Uh, that was a good fun chat about the Marshall Plan, a little bit out of our timeline, but we said, fuck it, we're yeah. crazy, we're wild. Get him while you anyway. can, that's right. He's so but Ben's so cool, he that, spells his first name with two N's, so you, you know he's yeah. cool. Yeah, and he pronounces his surname Steele, not Style, <laughs> as it should be. <clears throat> he doesn't, Bring doesn't him want steel. to betray his German heritage. On our last episode, we talked about, before that, in 73, I guess, we were talking about the development of nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. and we're going to continue with that over the course of the next episode or two. Um, On 73, we talked about the difference between a fission bomb and a fusion bomb. Mm -hmm. Can you remember the difference between the two, Ray? What's what's a fission bomb? What's a fusion bomb? No, I can't remember. One's a lot more powerful, but that's all I can remember. Well, a fission bomb... Yeah. You know what a fissure is? It's when something breaks apart. A fission bomb is when you break apart the nucleus of an atom, mm. particularly uranium or plutonium, and, and the, the breaking apart of the nucleus releases shit ton of energy <laughs> that's stored up in right. the, the, the forces that bind the uh, nucleus together. A fusion bomb is when you push shit into a nucleus, ah. which also releases a shit ton of energy. As it turns out, more energy, that's a fusion bomb. So fission, breaking apart, fusion, fusing together. Right, okay, that's gotcha. how All you right. remember it. We talked if, about if the magic I, number K. Yeah. I was just going to add to the Hunter Clause, um, to just to recap, um, the Fer- Fermi and his team on December 2nd, 1942, they released the en- energy of the atom's nucleus. They control it. Of course, now what's going to go, what's going to happen now from this point. But before we get to that, they shared a little Chianti. Uh, they got down. They got freaky, which for some of these scientists was the first time that they got laid. So it was a pretty historic day that day in Chicago. Really? You're inserting yourself into the Hunter Claus recap now, I, the Hunter recap. That's what I'm Uncle doing. Ray. Why can't I? <sighs> Just breaking my flow here, dude. Okay. Flow. F- sorry. Don't I didn't mean to break strings, your flow. Ray. Rule number one. Um, and we talked about the magic number K, which was the amount of neutrons you needed to generate 
in order to create a sustainable chain reaction. So that's the Hunter recap for today. Now, on this episode, we're going to see just how enormous the Matten project became, both in terms of people and money and the challenges they faced. It really was quite an astounding project, one of the if not maybe the biggest projects that the a government has ever attempted, right. particularly under these conditions and in this timeline. Yeah. And they were flying now, blind. Uh, flying blind like we are on this show. <laughs> now, as you say, the, 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 the Fermi experiment, Stagfield in Chicago, December 2nd, 1942, he was able to uh, achieve K and create a, a chain reaction. 24 days later, a little over three weeks later, FDR authorised the Manhattan Project to go full steam uh, on the 28th of December, 1942. This is Christmas present to the world. Build a bomb that can wipe us all out. Merry Christmas. Ho, 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 ho. Now, the US... The U.S. would end up spending $2 billion on it. Now, this is 1940-whatever dollars, three, four, five dollars Do you know what that would be worth today, Ray, in today dollars? I do not, but we ended up spending $2.2 billion, just to be precise. God, don't fucking correct I'm just, me, I'm not bitch. correcting. I'm helping. I'm assisting. If anything, I'm making you look better. I'm the wind. The wings? The wings beneath your... Something. Beneath my beneath my wind, you're the face beneath my fart. Um, no, no, that's not right. No, that's not even close. The two billion dollars is about twenty-two billion dollars today. So really, right? Just what uh, Trump spends on, you know, Twitter, right? Uh, every week. I don't know. Do you um, do you know how much we spent? We the United States spent on World War Two total. I do not. About three hundred billion. Wow! So you got the you got the atomic bomb. You've got the, obviously the war and everything else. You've got the lend lease. So by the time it was all over with, but but don't get me wrong. And you were making this point earlier on on a, on a previous episode. Only someone like the United States who has financially raped the world and who is not being bombed and and strafed and and being occupied by an enemy uh, power has the ability to. Harness all their resources, financial and scientific, and can devote years to this, and that's exactly what we did. Three hundred billion, yeah, it's a lot of, lot of, lot of coins, a lot of man. clams. Um, yeah, yeah, we were just, we were just talking to Ben Steele. They spent thirteen odd billion on the Marshall Plan a couple of years later. So again, wow. drop in the ocean. Yeah, really. yeah. Do you know why the Manhattan Project costs so much, Ray? Well, by the time we're all done, I mean they're they're literally building mega towns. Out, out of nothing in places that are nowhere, and they're hiring. I mean, literally, the uh, unemployment problem of the United States was wiped out after Pearl Harbor. So, as as we're going to see, I mean, all the stuff that we're creating, the people that are being employed, all the different uh, uh, appendages of the Manhattan Project. I mean, we are just reinventing the wheel on a massive scale in so many different locations. Yeah, you have a tendency to spend a shit ton of money in a relatively short time. Do you know how many people worked on the Manhattan Project? Uh, total or in various locations? Total. Let's see. No, because I know I got numbers written down for various places like Oak Ridge and uh, stuff like that, but no, I don't have a total. 
What is it? Take a guess. Take a guess, Ray. Uh, 125,000. I have no idea. 130,000. I can't believe you go. Really? You just pulled that out of your I, ass? I swear to God. And, and, but here, here's the other thing because Oak Ridge had like 40, 50,000. Uh, the other places were smaller. And so I just did a quick calculation. Uh, shit, I had another point, but it's now gone. Damn. Yeah. So, so all those people focused, harnessed, being driven, the fear of the war. I mean, th- these people did some amazing things in a relatively short amount of time. I've seen you pull some weed shit out of your ass before. <laughs> Usually they're made of rubber. Uh, but and, that number... And I really give you a warning first. <laughs> now, when I used to think of the Manhattan Project, I used to imagine it was a handful of guys sitting around a blackboard scribbling equations in chalk. Right. And I was like, well, $2 billion. Yeah, that's a good gig if you can get it. I mean, they're smart guys, no doubt. They deserve to get paid well. But really, $2 right. billion? Yeah. 130000 people, as you say, were involved in the project. Now, over 90% of the cost was for building factories yeah. to produce the fissile material. Only 10% of that $2 billion actually went for the development and production of the bombs themselves. Wow. The rest of it was just to make the shit you needed to make the bombs and to figure out how to make the shit that you needed to make the bombs. <laughs> right. Because as we'll see... And we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but they really didn't know how to make the fissile material. So they just ran up multiple methods in parallel and hoped that at least one of them would work. (laughs) And And in order to build and run these factories, you needed 130,000 people, basically. And what you're going to hear time and again over the next two episodes, not just from us, but we're quoting people who were involved in this, um, that uh, time was more important than money. And they're just going to say, yeah, build this, build this. No, do it on a grand scale. Because now that FDR has given his um, approval for this and they've got an initial um, amount of money to work with, which is more than any of them can probably comprehend, you've got to build – and we don't have to go into the details, but just to give you an idea, you've got the full-scale gaseous diffusion. You've got the plutonium plants. You've got the scaled-down electromagnetic plant. You've got the heavy water production facilities. And that's just to get started with the idea of research in order to find out how to build a bomb. Yeah, remember, you couldn't just go to Amazon and buy (laughs) pure uranium – 235 or plutonium like you can today right. when you want to make your backyard bomb. I mean, these were the olden days. Right. <laughs> you had to, it had to be made. You couldn't buy it from anywhere. You, you had to go and figure out how to make uranium 235 or make your pure plutonium and not just make a little bit, make a lot of it. And right. in fact, they didn't know how much they had to make still. Right. They really had no idea. Did they need a cupful? Did they need a barnful? They really a bucket. didn't know. Yeah. So yeah. they just had to make as much of it as they could. Now, out of that 130,000 people, do you know how many knew that they were working on developing an atomic bomb? I'm going to guess less than 50, but that's just a wild guess. I saw an interview with uh, General Groves, uh, took place sort of 46, and they asked him, and he wasn't a big one for answering questions in the best of times, but he said, I don't know, maybe 100. Wow. So just just a handful of people, you know, you're probably your top military and your top scientists, but not many people out of that. So imagine 130,000 people 
working on a project and they don't know what it's for. Wow. And, and here's the other... It has to be yeah. one of the... Best kept secrets in military history. And I'm not just talking about the working bees. Even the management of the, the, the factories and the, right. the businesses like DuPont that were helping them with this stuff didn't know what they were doing. They'd ask, well, what do you need all this shit for? They go, we can't tell you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it was a pretty impressive exercise. Yeah. To add on to that, the, the, um, the name of the, the names of the companies that were involved in various parts of this is literally a who's who in the chemical industrial, uh, history of the United States. But like you said, uh, these guys, whether it was Pearl Harbor or just wanting to hurry up and do their part to end the war, or they just knew that they shouldn't ask. Yeah. They were able to keep a tight lid on it. What is going to make this a lot easier, even though they're working at breakneck speed. And like you said, they have really no idea what they're doing it's all being done in secret but fdr groves oppenheimer and everybody who's working with them who does know what's going on they don't have to worry about some of the normal channels they're not worried about congress and they're not worried about public opinion because they have no idea what's going on fdr is uh, in charge of the military he says this needs to get done he has asked uh congress for blank check they've given it to him because of pearl harbor so they're just able to do whatever they want and really the only person they have to appease is FDR. Now, of course, remember that in December 1942, when Roosevelt gave, signed, the, signed the blank check for the Manhattan Project, nobody knew how long the war would last. Mm -hmm. And nobody knew how long it would take to build a bomb, even if it was possible to build a bomb. <laughs> right. So it was highly likely at that stage that the war would be over before they even figured it out, if, if it was indeed even doable. But they did it anyway. I mean, if we don't need it for this war, we'll need it for the next war. So Absolutely. let's just go and f figure it out. Now, while uh, Bush was seeking approval from the president, Vannevar Bush, we mentioned last time, one of the senior uh, um, science, scientists in the United States, great inventor, great innovator, while he was working with FDR on that, Oppenheimer was trying to figure out where they were going to build a lab. He assumed this was going to go ahead. Yeah. Now, he needed to build a lab in a place where it could be top secret, mm -hmm. uh, where no one would be able to stumble across it, Oops. and also where you could have both theoretical physicists and practical physicists doing experiments together working side by side, because this was in such a state of flux. You needed to put all of the best minds together. Now, usually theoretical physicists and applied physics don't sit together. Right. Theoreticists come up with the ideas, the applied guys figure out how to build an experiment to test it. But he threw them all together, and the site they chose, or Oppenheimer chose with Grove's approval, was the Los Alamos Boys Ranch School in New Mexico, which, by the way, just used to be called Mexico, but then America <laughs> took it over and thought, you know, if we call it New Mexico, no one will remember that it used to just be called Mexico. <laughs> well, yeah, we talk, we cleaned it up and put the new on there. And this was on a mesa on a flat top tail. Now, of course, because this is in the middle of nowhere, it's going to need water. It's going to need power. But because it's not going to be nearly as big as Oak Ridge in Tennessee, it should be able to. Uh, they should be able to handle this. The owners of the boys' school wanted to sell it. 
Grove snatched it up, and so by the end of 42, the district engineer in Albuquerque was ordered to begin building, and as far as contracting supplies and personnel, the University of California was tapped for that. So they have their land, they've they've bought this boys' school, they kicked everybody off, it is time to get going. Now... A boys' ranch school. I'm not the only ranch I'm familiar with is ranch dressing, which I'd never heard of until Chrissy started importing it into the country. <laughs> um, Los Alamos was a private ranch school for boys. Was it like City Slickers? You, you know, I'm asking you. You're the American man. What the fuck is a ranch? School? I, I don't know. You learned a ranch. Is is it is it a place for boys who have behavioral problems, or do you go there to become a cowboy? I honestly don't know the answer to that. I read that it was modeled after the Boy Scouts, and two of the famous graduates of the school include William S. Burroughs and Gore Vidal. So, yeah, maybe troubled kids. Well, <laughs> Let's go with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Highly, highly brilliant uh, troubled kids. <laughs> Unstable. Um, Unstable. Two of my favorite authors, by the way, read number of works of both of those guys. So well done, yeah. uh, Los Alamos. Uh, yeah, boys' school. Boys ranch now school. it's gone. Now the official name for the site during the war was Project Y. All of the all of these places uh, had secrety projecty names that they didn't uh, that that you know w- wasn't obvious if anyone stumbled across it. If the Soviets spying on it, which they were, uh, they wouldn't know what it was. Um, it was only after the war, when the existence of it became public, that it started being referred to as Los Alamos, oh. which is, is still referred to today. Opp- Oppenheimer was put in charge. Mm-hmm. Now, this is bizarre because, as we know, he was a known communist sympathiser, um, and also he didn't have a Nobel Prize when many of the people working in his team did, but apparently he was a great leader, according to some of the other scientists, uh, scientists who worked there. I read quotes from a number of them that said, look, nobody else in the laboratory even came close to Oppenheimer in terms of his brilliance, his genius. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, if you read Richard Feynman's books, you'd think Richard Feynman was the smartest guy who ever lived, (laughs) and he was definitely one of them. But uh, according to the people that were there, Oppenheimer was the fucking man, like... There's great, uh, great stories about him. Also, very, very warm, mm-hmm. like a nice guy, very warm human being. He gave gave the impression that he cared about everyone's contributions. Um, made you know made everyone feel like their contribution was really important to the success of the project. Just what you want from a leader, like yeah. the dream leader for smart people is somebody who's as smart, if not smarter, than you. You know, I think. Dumb people get threatened by smart people. Smart people, generally speaking, in my experience, want to work with people that are even smarter than them. Right. Um, and, uh, you, but you also don't, you don't want that person to be a complete fucking psychopath <laughs> asshole too. You want somebody who's really, really smart, but right. also, yeah. you know, skills. isn't a complete... Person. Right, social skills. You know, somebody who's a D, intelligent D-back. Right. Um, <laughs> So there's a great story where Oppenheimer would uh, go into a room where there was a bunch of scientists sitting around debating something. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he'd sit there for a while. He would listen. Then he'd stand up, sum up everyone else's points, turn around and leave without giving his own opinion. <laughs> but when he left, everyone knew what the right answer was. He was just so good at being able to sum up the arguments that everyone was like, oh. So he was like, yeah. he was like the physicist Buddha. This guy. 
I, I thought something that was interesting, not only is he directing these people, like like uh, someone that knew him really well said he could talk to you about anything, but you're right, he's dealing with these high-level problems, but at the same time, he's dealing with some of the most basic things. Um, someone not getting their mail, someone's pay getting messed up, he's all over the place, he can handle that. But what makes it interesting is that when he was very, very young, he had a sibling that died. And I can't remember if we talked about this in a previous episode, but his mother was so paranoid that something was going to happen to him that she pretty much kept him away from everybody. So for the first couple of years in school, elementary school, and maybe even what in America we call middle school, he hardly had any friends. And so he did not develop any social skills or social graces for a very long time. So to go from that to being an absolute and unpredictably so master of of dealing with all these geniuses, dealing with the military, dealing with Groves, who is a hard ass, and making it all work and, and getting everybody to work together is pretty staggering. And I think Groves, Groves was right. He was the one person who made this possible. Yeah, you got to give Groves credit for seeing that in him, despite their political and personality differences and um making sure he was on the team. It was a great piece of, again, you know, a hard thing to find, uh, in my experience, in the corporate world is managers who can acknowledge that, okay, this person's very different from me. They think different. They act different. They have Mm -hmm. different values. But they're highly intelligent, and we need to have them on the team anyway. That's a a fairly rare trait to have that level of uh, managerial capability and confidence. And for all Grove's faults, which we've talked about before, no one liked him really. He was a complete <laughs> asshole. He seemed to be pretty good in that regard, amongst others. Like, he got shit done, Groves. As yeah. I said, this is one of the biggest projects ever got run up very, very quickly. He stepped on a lot of heads to get it done, but he got it done. Um, <clears throat> Oppenheimer also um, made everyone in Los Alamos uh, aware that they should be able to know everything about the project. They weren't relegated to their particular piece of the scientific puzzle. It was kept top secret from everyone else. But he said, look, these guys are too important and they're too smart to keep in the dark about anything because they may have insights into other areas of the project, even if it's not their specific domain, because that's how intelligence works. It's it's quite often, it's a problem-solving capability. It's ability to, to pass uh, data and information, uh, analyze it, and and figure out what it means. And so we need everyone. So they would all sit in on big meetings to solve problems together, whether or not you know it was your particular field of expertise or not. Everyone felt important. Everyone felt involved. Yeah. And, and it's not that they didn't have their problems. When they first got started, Groves put his stamp on a lot of things, and he wanted the uh, the scientists to be commissioned officers and respect the military chain of command. And like you were saying, Oppie Op- came in and said, no, no, we can't do that. The theor- theor- theoreticians and the experimentalists, they have to be able to talk. They have to be able to mix it up. If the lowest guy has an idea, he should be able to walk up to, to the top guy and go, hey, I got an idea about something. He shouldn't have to get to report to his su- superior officer. The scientists didn't like working that way. And Groves was smart enough to back off and go, okay, as long as we can keep the overall secret, I don't care how you do it. So Oppie's in charge of the science, the military is in charge of security, and when they worked that way, things worked out pretty well. But they got a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, yeah, Huge amounts of material to be obtained, as I said before, they still don't know how much fissile material they actually need. But, uh, you know, here's some stats. They were uh, they needed more than 3 million 
cubic feet of timber. Oh, God. They needed so many magnets that they ran out of copper for winding the magnets. So mm-hmm. the army had to substitute silver instead of copper. I didn't even know you could make magnets out of silver. No. They had to borrow almost 150,000 tons of silver bullion from the U.S. Treasury to make magnets Damn. for this thing. Expensive magnets. Imagine that, right? Uh, hey, uh, is this the Treasury? Ring, ring. Uh, yeah, <laughs> can you ship... 150,000 tons of silver ingots uh, to the middle of fucking nowhere in New Mexico. We What's need it, it right for? now. Can't tell Can't you. you. Can't tell you. Just, just fucking send the silver. Listen, ASAP. here's the deal. We will give it back at yeah. some point. In, in a different shape. And, and, and not to go into too much science detail, but I just thought this was... Incredible. Oppenheimer tells Groves, look, it turns out we were wrong about some estimates. We need three times the fissionable material that we thought we would need initially to make a bomb. And so you're right. So they're making these big giant uh, magnets, but the magnets are so powerful that they're wrecking other parts of the facilities that they're using. They're bending things out of shape. They're ripping things apart. So even though this is one of the ways that they're going to try to get the fissionable material... It's not working out very well right now. They're going to have to build more of these facilities, and they're going to have to think of some different stuff. But right now, because they skipped the part where they build the pilot plant and do some testing because they're in a hurry, they're having to deal with these massive headaches on the fly. Fortunately, they've got all these brilliant people around, but it is truly a pain in the ass for Oppie, for Groves, and for, for a lot of these other guys. And they literally couldn't get enough of the things they needed, like yeah. vacuum tubes and generators and regulators. Regulators! <laughs> um, they just couldn't get enough of all that stuff. It, just, it, wasn't, it wasn't available. I mean, they're in the middle of a war to begin with, but no right. one had ever done this before. They didn't even know what they needed. Right. They just thought, you know, we'll just keep trying to design it and hope it worked. And, and, and as you pointed out, there was going through constant changes Last-minute design changes, which would frustrate the equipment manufacturers who were still kept in the dark about what was going on. They'd ring up the manufacturer of some vacuum tubes. We need 20. No, make that (laughs) 2,000. No, make that 5,000 and make them 10% bigger. No, 8% smaller. And these guys are like, what the – why – can't you guys just tell us? No, we can't tell you exactly because we don't know. What's it for again? Can't tell you. Just it's do it because oh we said and here's some money. Um, now there were there were other issues as well. Now you you talked about he, Oppenheimer saying he needed three times more fissionable material, but they weren't even sure how they were going to be able to create this stuff. As we said <laughs> earlier, they had the team at Oak Ridge in Tennessee that was trying mm-hmm. to create uranium two three five, but things weren't going well. Mm-hmm. They had two teams, as you indicated before, using different ways of trying to extract. Remember, the uranium you dig out of the ground is called uranium-238. It's a particular isotope of uranium. What they want is actually uranium-235, and only 0.7% of the uranium you dig out of the ground is uranium-235. But wow. it looks exactly the same as uranium-238. <laughs> I got some. It has almost exactly the same weight and properties as right. uranium-238. So the challenge is how do we separate the uranium-235 from the uranium-238? And they didn't really know 
how to do that uh, or how to do it on scale. So yeah. they've got two teams at Oak Ridge. One is using electromagnetic separation, one approach. Another's using gaseous diffusion, another approach. But both of them were struggling. They were having equipment malfunctions and breakdowns, just couldn't get it working. So they're way behind schedule yeah. trying to produce fissionable material. So even going into 1944, mm-hmm. they, were, they were unsure that they were going to be able to do this. They were going to be able to get enough uranium. So Oppenheimer turned to the Navy. Now, the bomb project is in the hands of the Army. And the mm-hmm. Navy had their own atomic project trying to come up with a, a source of nuclear fuel for submarines. Because if, 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 if there's anything you, you really, really want when you're 1,000 feet below the sea, Ray, <laughs> yeah. fighting giant octopuses uh, and, and Captain Nemo, Right, is a nuclear, is a nuclear bomb ticking away right. at the back of your back of your soul. That's t- and did a Bahama you, Mama. Did you, did you read about this uh, guy called Abelson who was heading it up for the Navy? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. So in April of '44, because of all the problems they're having with the gaseous diffusion and the electromagnetic uh, process, there are in April of '44 they're already four months behind. And Groves, who's an asshole, becomes a much bigger, smellier asshole once they fall behind schedule. So he's tearing into everybody, and Oppenheimer's trying to mend fences as best he can. So in April of '44, Oppenheimer writes to Groves and he says, "Hey, you should go check out Philip Abelson's experiments that he's doing." on thermal diffusion. He's at the Philadelphia Naval Yard. He might be onto something. But what for me makes it ironic was that when this whole thing got started, when the letter was first from Einstein was uh, sent to FDR, Abelson had been working um, with, with uh, the, the government entity that was first looking into this, and he wanted to pursue his, uh, what he was doing, and they told him no, so he leaves and he goes to the Navy. So in some ways, he was there at the very beginning, and now he's back into the story. So, he, so he's got his process that's going on. He's trying to build a plant to enrich uranium, and supposedly it's going to be done in July. But Oppenheimer says, look, Groves, you've got a billion dollars or whatever. If you can help him build his plant faster, we might be able to get some of that enriched uranium to use at the Y-12 uh, facility back at Oak Ridge. Yeah, this is, uh, there's a few things I love about this story about Abelson. So he was working at the time with uh, a factory that he'd built to figure out how to use thermal diffusion, and he'd built 100 convection columns. Right. Now, my understanding of a convection column, it's basically a big tower. You go to a an energy plant, like a, a, a um, you know, a um, nuclear plant or something like that uh, uh-huh. these days, or, or or a coal plant. We've got a lot of those in Australia because we, we make a lot of coal. And it's it's the thing, the big tower, right, that you see that's got steam coming out. Right. Um, he'd built 100 of those. Not a bad effort, right? 100? Yeah. Fuck, that's, yeah. that's a lot. That's a lot. Groves goes and says, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna work with you uh, to figure this shit out. We're gonna help throw some money at it. All right, you're gonna share your knowledge. All right, all right, all right, all right. Within ninety days, do you know how many convection columns Groves built? Two thousand one hundred and forty-two. Fuck! Did you pull that number out of your ass as well? <laughs> no, That's amazing. No, 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 I did not pull it. Yeah, so so literally, they're gonna they're gonna build this uh, back in Oak Ridge." 
and they're what is that two hundred times? I I don't do advanced mathematics. Two hundred times what Abelson had, 20. but the point twenty. But he had he had pointed them in the right direction because at first they had considered. I don't do math. I'm a historian. At first they considered Abelson's plan back in 1940, but they gave it up. But he was showing some very positive results, so they're going to take what he does and max it out because money is not as important as time. 90 days, he built 2,142 columns, a, play, a factory from scratch yeah. with 2,100 Damn. convection columns. Damn. Does not fuck around. I like, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> now, there was a third major facility as well where they were trying to work um, out how to get enough uh, fissile material, and this was in Hanford in Washington, uh, it's uh, a, a little town, it was a little town, about halfway between Seattle and Spokane, and it was being run by DuPont, and it was trying to produce the plutonium. Now, mm-hmm. interesting story about Hanford, I found out. At the time, you know, uh, 1940s, it was a bit of a booming agricult- agricultural district. Mm. Um, it, it had you know, lots of farms, had a bank, cinema, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, the government came in when they decided, they, they were sort of looking for a remote area, flying around. They found this place, Groves and some of his guys had a look at it and go, yep, that's, that's what we want. So in the middle of nowhere, right. different part of the country, this is uh, exactly what we want. They, they rocked in, the government rocks in and gives all 1,500 residents of Hanford, Washington, eviction notices. <laughs> Say, so listen, um, <laughs> government is going to purchase your properties from you right. at a price to be determined by the government. Yeah. And you have between two and 30 days to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and people said, we don't want to sell. They said, no, no, you don't understand. No, no. We're not asking. No. Here. <laughs> but what have we done? We're good citizens. We pay our taxes. We, we grow apples. Don't give a fuck. No. I'm using uh, that tax money. To force you out, yeah. You have to leave. But yeah. we're a democracy. Uh, no, uh, not right now. We're not. Not during this war. This particular part. So they went to the courts, a lot of these yeah. guys, uh, uh, to fight this. And uh, Groves basically just settled out of court and said, oh, well, okay, we'll give yeah. you a bit more money. Now, fuck off. <laughs> but it wasn't a lot of money. Uh, people said, why, why are you doing this to us? We've lived here for like three generations. We've been investing, building the farm. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? We don't care. We can't tell you why it's top secret. Just fuck off. Yeah. What do you not understand? The fuck or the off? Because I can, I can reiterate if I have to. Now, they were purchased at fairly low prices. It's not like they said, listen, oh, we're going to pay you 10 times what it's worth. We, 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 we've got a blank checkbook, open checkbook here, <laughs> but we're not going to give you any more money than we have to to get rid of you. Yeah. Um, they weren't allowed to harvest their crops despite it being a bumper year with good prices. Oh, that's cheeky. Because people love their apples in the middle of a war. Some mm. farms were actually being leveled while families were still living in the <laughs> homes. One guy remembered his father receiving $500 for a 10-acre irrigated farm. Now, you might think, I don't know, sounds like a lot of money. He said, well, digging the well and laying the irrigation system alone had just cost them $1,100. And after, the the government said, look, we're going to pay you $500 for the farm, but 
you owe us back taxes, and <laughs> two, you haven't paid your electricity bill, so we're going to take that out. That's going to leave you with three hundred dollars. Now, now you know how we were able to afford to build the bomb. Now, many of the the residents of Hanford believe they were entitled to the same kind of reparation payments that interned Americans of Japanese descent got later from the government. They basically said, look, the government stole our property like you stole the Japanese property. And the government went, no, no, (laughs) sorry, you're tough titties. Grove, and this is the kicker for me, Grove wrote in his memoirs that he regretted paying too much for the farms. (laughs) So you can imagine how the... You know, the surviving residents felt about that. They then leveled the entire town, except for the high school, which was used for sort of management offices while they started to rebuild the town. Uh, And I think it still stands to this very day. Now, you wanted to talk about DuPont. Before you get into DuPont, though, I was going to point out that DuPont and the army then started recruiting laborers from all over the country. Uh, and within a year, there were 50,000 workers in Hanford living in a tent ocean, a sea of <laughs> tents and wooden barracks, right. nowhere to go, nothing much to do, just work, go to sleep, get up and work again in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So, so as we said earlier, Groves is an asshole, and that and that's a very telling point right there that he complained that they paid too much. Uh, but he did have some political skills. He went to Dupont and he said, "Look, we're building this facility here. We want you to be in charge of it. We want you to to run it for us." So Dupont is like, "Well, we did some stuff." Uh, for the military in the Great War, and we were accused of war profiteering, and we got we got our ass handed to us in a public relations uh, fiasco after the war. So we're not going to do it. And Groves is like, no, no, it's going to be a, a fine this time because it's going to be top secret. No one's going to know about it. Dupont still says no. So Groves has to schmooze them, and he says, look, tell you what, what we'll do is we'll pay you one dollar over costs over costs for everything that you do. And that was the only way to bring them on the board, that it had to be known that they were not going to make any money. So Oppenheimer's got his skills, and even though Groves is an asshole, he's got his various skills because he needs these companies who've got this experience. They've got these technicians. They're already up to speed. He's got to bring them on board, and he did a very good job of, of, of that part of his responsibility. Yeah, and I... Drilled down into DuPont, because I don't know much about their background. Mm-mm. Do you know uh, much about their how they got their start, Ray? No, no, I do not. In July 1802, Cocaine. DuPont was founded sorry, sorry, sorry. by an American. Uh, well, he was actually a French-American chemist. Uh, Eleuthere Irene DuPont <laughs> in his family um, sort of escaped. Uh, uh, escaped uh, France a couple of years earlier during the revolution. Um, and he had a bit of a background in chemistry, DuPont, and he got to America and realized that American gunpowder was shit. <laughs> ba- badly, badly uh, manufactured, badly, uh, you know, didn't, didn't work well, misfired a lot. He's like, it's amazing they even won their uh, revolution <laughs> right. with this kind of gunpowder. Um, so he used capital that he raised in France 
and, and bought gunpowder-making machinery from France, imported it into America, and set up uh, his company near, Del- uh, near Wilmington in Delaware, a place called the Eulotherian Mills, after his name, Eulotherian. Eulotherian Mills on Brandywine Creek um, near Wilmington in Delaware, and uh, started making gunpowder. And, of course, uh, by the time of the Civil War, he had built the largest supplier of gunpowder to the U.S. military because his product was better than anything else they were building domestically. He was supplying over half the powder used by the Union Army during the Civil War. The company has then gone on to develop, amongst other things, nylon, Teflon, Mylar, Kevlar, and Lycra, the, pretty much everything you touch that's made out of petroleum products, they probably invented. Uh, and as you say, they agreed at this point, despite their initial reticence to uh, build the plutonium pile for Groves. Now, the scientists uh, at Hanford were from the metal metal fuck him, I can't say that word at this time, metallurgical. Laboratory, uh-huh. MetLab. MetLab. Yeah. Scientific laboratory at the University of Chicago that was established in 1942 to study plutonium. But the problem with getting plutonium to go fissile is that it required a different process than uranium. They had, it had to come up with a different firing mechanism. Right. Now, remember when we talked about using uranium-235, in order to detonate a bomb, you need to get a critical mass... Uh, happening quickly, which will then it will explode by itself. And mm-hmm. you have to get it to happen rapidly. You have to make that, you have to get that first fissile material inside the middle of the uranium quickly, or if it, if it's, if, if you introduce it into the, you know, the ball, think of the, the uranium 235 as a ball. If you introduce the Fissile material, this is the, the initial stuff that's giving off neutrons, mm-hmm. to the outside of the ball, it'll sort of start exploding on the outside and won't blow the bomb apart. It'll sort of uh, fizzle out. You need right. to get it in very quickly into the center of the mass. And so they basically were just going to use a, a gun to fire the fissionable pellet the projectile into the middle of the into the middle of the bomb sure and then it would blow up now that would work with uranium but it would only work with plutonium if you could get absolutely pure plutonium problem is they weren't able to make absolutely pure plutonium Mm -hmm. or enough of it anyway so they had to come up with a different way of getting the plutonium to blow up and uh, we'll talk about um, some of that later on, what they came up with, um, which is, is kind of ingenious. But again, still no one really knew exactly how much plutonium was going to be needed and whether or not Hanford could produce enough. And then when they started testing the plutonium approach and later in 1944, they couldn't get it to create a chain reaction. And I found this interesting. They, they, they would be able to get it to start reacting and then it, mm-hmm. would, it would grow and it would grow and it would grow and then it would taper off. They weren't able to achieve K right. with plutonium. And eventually they figured it out. It was something they called xenon poisoning. Mm. Now, what happened is when they started the chain reaction, one of the things that would give off is the element xenon. 
Mm -hmm. But the element xenon would then start absorbing neutrons faster than the pile could create them. Ah. So it would suck the semen out of the orgasming pile. Everything comes down to a sexual analogy for me, right? You know that better than anyone. I do, I do. I wanted to, uh, let me know when you get to a stopping. Yeah, sorry. Go. I will. You'll be able to tell by the tone of my voice, Ray, when I come to a handover. So on Christmas Day in 1944, they figured out the solution was increasing the number of tubes containing irradiated uranium slugs, because that's how they got the, the, the... plutonium to blow up is they drop irradiated uranium so it's giving off neutrons into the middle of the plutonium and they just figured well let's just double the number let's just throw more at it and so that's how they worked out so that is my point here just that's that's the scientific approach when things not working just throw more shit (laughs) at it and see if that works and you know there you go it worked good enough Good. I, I wanted to ask, would you be the person to volunteer to shoot the bomb? To shoot something into the bomb? You were talking about, uh, you know. Yeah, no. I would be <laughs> as far away from this fucking place as you could imagine. No, there, there's something I wanted to share with you. I, I forgot it earlier, but Richard Carrier and I were having a conversation as I was taking him to the back to the airport uh, so, he could, so he could go back home. Um because uh, Los Alamos, obviously no one, uh, probably no one in Germany and Japan knows what's going on in Los Alamos, even though, as we're going to see later on, Stalin's going to get an idea because there's going to be a spy of his in there. Um, Hitler, this is according to Richard uh, Carey, and I looked it up later, and he was right. Hitler had a plan to um, to throw off American war production because the Americans are helping the Russians. Americans are helping the British. Ma- Americans have got the lend lease going on. And we're, we're building up our Navy and stuff like that. And as we've pointed out time and time again, uh, America's busy thumping its chest, thinking about its great past and especially its participation in world war two. But like you've said in the past, we weren't being bombed. We weren't invaded, that, that kind of stuff. It turns out that Hitler and certain segments of Japan were trying to format foment, um, rebellion in Mexico. They were trying to stir up some of the certain parties there that were fascist. They were trying to get those people in charge of Mexico. And what Hitler wanted to do was have like-minded people take over the government of Mexico, and he was going to tell them, look, if you invade America from the South and we win, I will give you, I will make sure you get back all of the Southwest and the West of America. So obviously it never happened. The America, the Mexicans, with all due respect, wouldn't have gotten very far. We, you know, whatever, uh, when you compare the militaries. Uh, but the point is these two sides were trying to come up with something. And it just, it just seems ironic to me that one of the places they probably would have stumbled into is Los Alamos. But Richard Kerr is like, Oh yeah, you should get check this out. Hitler had all these crazy plans. He was going to get Mexico into invade and, uh, uh, that kind of thing. And so I, it was just a conversation that I had with him that I totally forgot that could have, you know, if Hitler had gotten his way, it could have affected the research in America. But again, nothing ever happened. So America had the time and had the peace and the luxury to really focus on building this bomb. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we've talked about that 
on the show, one of the Mexican? shows before, because huh. the Americans intercepted that, and they because they had uh, broken the German codes, they were able to. Oh, I don't remember. That, okay. Well, after four years, I I can be forgiven for uh, not remembering everything we talk about. Yeah, your age, Ray. <laughs> in my in my advanced age, <laughs> fuck you. <clears throat> So by January 1945, the uh, team up at Hanford had produced enough plutonium nitrate to send it to Los Alamos. And I love this. So one of Grove's staff, uh, Colonel Franklin Mathias, carried the first small batch of plutonium nitrate by train from (laughs) Portland to Los Angeles, where uh, he turned it over to a security courier who then uh, took it to Los Alamos. Um, so imagine, like it's straight out of a movie, right? He's got right. A, probably a briefcase with a with a with a handcuff on right. it, a chain, yeah. trench coat. He's hat. carrying the uh, the core of a nuclear weapon in his <laughs> briefcase. <laughs> Was um, he nervous? It, yeah. it arrived in Los Alamos on the second of February. Now, after that, they kept sending small batches, whatever they could build them. In metal containers inside wooden crates by army ambulance mm. that would travel in convoys all the way down to Los Alamos and New Mexico. <laughs> so, again, it's just a great visual. It's like straight out of a movie. This convoy of ambulances carrying <laughs> um, plutonium right. across America. And, of course, you know what the theme song was that they were playing as they drove. So now, uh, the 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 fucking uh, plutonium they're trying to get there is uh, going to be part of uh, the fusion bomb mm-hmm. that they're working on, um, as I discussed before. By the way, the fusion of of um, a fusion bomb. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what I'm talking about here. Uh, is as, is as powerful, is more powerful than the energy given off by the sun. I was explaining this to Taylor uh, the other day. I was saying, no, no, you've got to realise that the heat from these bombs is more intense than the heat coming out of the sun. Damn. That's how powerful it was for a short blast. I think it was something yeah. like 100 times as powerful as the heat from the sun uh, when, it, when it blew up, which is why it just wipes everything out, you know, right. just clears, flattens everything. He said to me something like, yeah, but what happened if you hid behind uh, a big piece of metal or you <laughs> no. hid in a metal box no. when the bomb went off? It's like, yeah, well, for a start, the metal box, you know, it might survive. Pieces of it. probably wouldn't. Right. Yeah, it'd, it'd get just fucking melted to shit. Uh, but even before that happens, the heat right. inside of it <laughs> yeah. would be a thousand times the heat of an oven. You'd basically just be baked alive. In Think of seconds. a turkey. But yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, now, the the hydrogen bomb that they were working on, um, or the super, as they called it in Los Alamos, which is really where the fusion bomb was going to be big, because that's that's basically what a fusion bomb is, is where you, um, you uh, fuse hydrogen atoms together. It was a whole separate project that Oppenheimer uh, was working on, he, he saw it as a distant second priority. It was going to take a long time to figure it out. Right. But um, he dedicated Edward Teller to focusing on building the super bomb. Um, and as I think I said in an earlier show, all nuclear weapons today are 
hydrogen-based fusion bombs, thermonuclear fusion bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at Los Alamos, by this stage, Oppenheimer had put together a stellar team of the country's leading physicists, um, and some of them had even come from Britain. There was really one interesting physicist that came from Britain, Ray. Uh-huh. Did you read about uh, Klaus Fuchs? Yeah, he had to step up when Teller was put in charge of the super because even though that's a problem that's coming down the line, it's still got to be dealt with. And like you said, Oppie put Teller in charge of that, so they replaced him uh, somewhere along the way with Fuchs. Fuchs, I don't know how to say his name, but it turns out that his loyalties are not the same as everybody else's. Yeah, Klaus Fuchs gave no Fuchs, apparently, when it came to uh, keeping secrets. He was... He was passing information to the Russians since 1942, particularly about atomics, and kept doing that up until 1949 when he was finally caught Damn. and convicted of espionage. Yeah. Now, I got to say, with a name like Klaus Fuchs, I would have been pretty <laughs> suspicious from yeah. the get go. Yeah. That's just me. I uh, <laughs> like, uh, let's have another look at this Klaus Fuchs guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I concur. Uh, yeah. Uh, so he was uh, prosecuted and convicted on uh, the 1st of March 1950 in England of uh, four counts of breaking the Official Secrets Act. Uh, trial lasted less than 90 minutes. He was sentenced to 14 years imprisonment, the maximum for espionage at the time. Huh. Um, and... and uh, he was stripped of his British citizenship, and uh, but he got out, released in 1959 after serving nine years and four months, and uh, went to Germany, went to East Germany. Ah. So where he, he worked uh, on a number of different things, including helping the Chinese build their first atomic bomb. So uh, there you go, you know. Yeah. Well, good, I'm, good, good communist. I'm amazed he wasn't shot. I mean, I haven't looked into his story, but how is he not British? Sh- British, American, somebody. I mean, once they figure out what he's been doing and the secrets he's passed over and I don't know. I, again, I haven't looked into his thing, but you, you would think that that's a shootable offense, passing atomic secrets over to the enemy. Well, but they weren't the enemy. That's the thing. The Soviet Union oh, were gotcha. allies. At the time, at the time, gotcha. Okay, I would have shot him later. All right, all right. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's why he got off relatively lightly. Um, now, the problem with the plutonium method, as I mentioned before, is that you can't shoot a gun into plutonium. It, it, it uh, will fizzle out. It right. won't fissile, it'll fizzle. You don't want your fissile to fizzle. No. Um, That's the problem. Unless you can make it totally pure, which they couldn't. So they came up with this thing called the implosion method. Now, this is fascinating. They would build a shell, a high, like a metal shell around, imagine a ball of plutonium. Around the ball, Mm -hmm. you build a shell made out of, I think it's iron. And then you put a fuck ton of bombs, tiny little bombs, traditional bombs, around the shell. The idea is to blow the shell up so it you know, goes inwards, 
compresses the plutonium. Ah. And so the plutonium blows up, creates like a fusion explosion when it compresses it. Um, now, the problem, though, is to get the bomb to implode symmetrically, you needed to get this perfectly right. Right. And this was to, to get this to happen exactly right, like symmetrically, was incredibly challenging. Um, one of the problems they found is that if they, when they blew up the metal shell, it would melt the metal core, not compress it sometimes. Uh, right. So you, you, needed to, you, needed to, you needed to blow up this outer shell in just the right way so it would compress what was inside it, not melt it, or let it leak out the side, like blow some of it out right. the, the side of it. One of the guys, Parsons, who uh, Deke Parsons, who we'll get into, I think, in the next episode, he's a very important character in this whole story, he said, to my mind, it's gra- it was gradually uh, like working up to what I shall refer to as the beer can experiment. <laughs> as soon as you get the pl- explosives properly organised, the point is to watch to see if whether or not you can blow in a beer can without splattering the beer. Wow. So you want to blow up a beer can and have it compress the beer, not spurt the beer out. That's what they're trying to do, but with... Plutonium instead of beer. <laughs> now, um, John von Neumann, very famous American physicist, and Edward Teller, we mentioned before, worked out that if you could get this to happen right, it would be much quicker than even firing it from a gun uh, mm-hmm. like they were going to do with the uranium. And that if you could get the calculations exactly right you'd be able to compress this uh, shell, the hollow shell around the plutonium, down to a density that was even harder than the density of the iron inside the Earth. Wow. But, but you would have to do it really, really fast. So fast that it you know, wouldn't pre-detonate or melt the plutonium inside it. And the, to do this correctly, the plutonium would have to be really, really pure. Um, but also, you wouldn't need as much of it, which means it can be smaller, which means it can be easier to fit into a plane. Ah. So they worked out that if you could get this implosion method working correctly, mm-hmm. you might be able to build... Because they were still fig- trying to figure out how the fuck are we going to get this <laughs> thing small enough to get them on a plane, right? Right. Even right. using the biggest plane in the fucking universe, the the Super Fortress, which we'll talk about also in the next episode. Mm-hmm. So to su- sum up, to close out episode 75, Ray, this yeah. is what's going on. President Roosevelt has authorised basically a limitless check to get the Manhattan Project up and running. Very quickly, they have 130,000 people trying to figure out how to build shit you can blow up. They've got a lot of different approaches to it. They're taking over schools and villain towns all over the US, hiring anyone that's breathing and has a heartbeat (laughs) to come and work on building these things, dealing... With all sorts of challenges. How do we get enough fissile material in order to do that? How do we get even the stuff that we need to build factories to do this? They're, they're inventing the sciences they go. They're maxing out their American manufacturing capability to produce the stuff that they need and keeping it a top secret while they're doing it. 
Damn. Damn. And uh, before we finish up, um, I just want to say that we have no new reviews. So thanks a lot, people. Bastards. No coffee mugs to give out this week. But no, never, 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 (laughs) never, never. Never, never, ever, ever in the history of mankind has anyone wanted a review as much as we do. We'll be back next week, nevertheless, is what I was trying to say. Thank White. you, Ray. Thank you. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.